Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity and Bioethics.com. I'm Matthew Epinet, Director of Research and Analysis at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. This edition of the Bioethics Podcast features an excerpt from the Center book, Life's Worth, The Case Against Assisted Suicide, by Arthur J. Dyke, Ph.D., Dr. Dyke is a senior fellow of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. He also serves as both Mary B. Saltonstall Professor of Population Ethics and as a member of the Divinity Faculty at Harvard University. Favoring physician-assisted suicide is intuitive, self-evident. It is a matter of compassion. That is what one of my students recently claimed, and his view is shared by others. After all, he went on to argue, what else would any humane person do but assist those who are suffering and terminally ill to die if they wish such assistance? Such a view is certainly understandable. Consider the situation of Sidney Cohen, who was told by his physician that he had cancer and that he would die a painful death in less than three months. The cancer was diagnosed in November, and by January 1, Sidney Cohen described himself as bedbound by pain and weakness, having been able to drink only water for six weeks, desperate, isolated, and frightened, and wishing for euthanasia. If this is what one knows about Sidney Cohen's condition and his feelings about it, does it not seem inhumane to deny him a painless death? And if the prognosis is correct, spare him the suffering he is slated to endure for another month? But that is not the whole story. What we have before us is a static snapshot of this man. Indeed, this description is only part of what Sidney Cohen wrote about himself eight months after he was diagnosed with cancer and given only three months to live. On January 1, he tells us, I truly wished that euthanasia could have been administered. But it wasn't. So what has transpired in the months following January 1? In Sidney Cohen's own words... Quote, I now know that only death is inevitable, and since coming under the care of Macmillan's service, Hospice Home Care, my pain has been relieved completely, my ability to enjoy life restored, and my fears of an agonizing end allayed. I'm still alive today. My weight and strength have increased since treatment made it possible to eat normally, and I feel I'm living a full life worth living. My wife and I have come to accept that I'm dying, and we can now discuss it openly between ourselves and with the staff of the Macmillan Service, which does much to ease our anxieties. My experiences have served to convince me that euthanasia, even if voluntary, is fundamentally wrong, and I'm now staunchly against it on religious, moral, intellectual, and spiritual grounds. My wife's views have changed similarly." Close quote. Clearly, there are those who, hearing a description of someone in Sidney Cohen's condition on that January 1, are convinced that honoring his request to assist him to die, then, rather than suffer longer, is the morally appropriate, compassionate response. Indeed, one hears the argument accompanying such case descriptions that it is reasonable that no one would want to live under those circumstances. At the same time, the opponents of physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia 
can provide snapshots of cases helped by hospice home care or other medical interventions, documenting peaceful deaths and or gratitude for dying relatively free of anxiety and virtually or completely free of pain. But such snapshots, or even fuller case descriptions, do not settle the issues raised by the experiences of Sidney Cohen and others diagnosed as terminally ill or suffering from severely debilitating illnesses. What should such individuals ask of their caregivers and loved ones? And what kind of care ought to be offered? How should such seriously ill individuals relate to others? And how should others relate to them? What moral responsibilities do caregivers and those being cared for have to one another and to their communities? What moral responsibilities do communities have toward the severely ill and those who provide care for them? Some, in effect, argue that these questions are not relevant for those who are dying unless they want to put these questions to themselves. As a dying person, they say, I will and I should act on the basis of my own snapshot of myself and on my own view of whether my life should continue beyond a certain time. And furthermore, I should have the right to receive assistance and to discontinue life if and when I request it. So why even write a book trying to persuade me to think ever so carefully about whether or not physician-assisted suicide is ever morally justifiable and whether physician-assisted suicide should or should not be against the law. I should not have the manner of my dying dictated by governments and by legislation. Once I am in a condition in which it is rational for me to seek to end my life or seek assistance to accomplish that quickly and painlessly. But a decision to request physician-assisted suicide is influenced and shaped by assessments that are not simply those of the patient making the request. What patients regard as reasonable is not solely based on their own thinking, their own feeling, or their independent assessment of their illness and its future course. To regard oneself as terminally ill is certainly to begin with usually and largely based on a medical assessment, a diagnosis by a physician or physicians. To conclude that any given symptom, such as extreme pain, will persist until death is largely a function of prognosis and can be largely, if not entirely, a function of the quality of care and knowledge of the caregivers. A change in care, as in Sidney Cohen's case, can change one's condition one's self-assessment, and even what one considers to be reasonable care for those who are dying. Furthermore, what is perceived as reasonable may be unreasonable because the diagnosis and or prognosis that shapes one's perceptions are mistaken. The central argument of this book, Life's Worth, The Case Against Assisted Suicide, is that there is a solid moral and practical basis for the laws against assisted suicide that now exist in the United States and elsewhere. Furthermore, in the current debate, that case is not being made in a convincing way. The members of any community need to know the reasons why everyone should want to prevent suicide and what laws are necessary to sustain such efforts and achieve a high degree of success. At the same time, all of us need to know whether the traditions that favor physician-assisted suicide will undermine not only efforts to curb suicide, but also killing more generally. This is a real possibility since, as I argue, 
the moral and practical basis for the laws against assisted suicide are also the basis for the laws that specify and punish what constitutes murder. That was an excerpt from the center book Life's Worth, The Case Against Assisted Suicide by Arthur J. Dyke, Ph.D. Dr. Dyke is a senior fellow of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. He also serves as both Mary B. Saltonstall Professor of Population Ethics and is a member of the Divinity Faculty at Harvard University. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of Bioethics.com and the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The center exists to help individuals and organizations address the pressing bioethical challenges of our day. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on bioethical issues. For more information about the center and to support the work of the center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. And please visit bioethics.com for the latest bioethics-related news and comment. My name is Matthew Epinet. I'm the Director of Research and Analysis at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'd like to hear your thoughts about the Bioethics Podcast. My email address is matthew at cbhd.org. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.